morning, everyone. It's uh, nice to see you. Thank you for having me. I've been here, I think, a couple of times before. <clears throat> it's always nice to come back. Um, one thing I remember about uh, Boulevard is the... <clears throat> it's interesting the way you're seated. And <clears throat> preachers are always taught, young preachers are taught to make eye contact with their audience. And when you come to Boulevard, it's like watching the tennis. <laughs> But I'm sure, nevertheless, we uh, get used to that. Now, we'd like to turn, please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we'll start to read at verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, that I might be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. I've been enjoying the first half of Romans chapter 1 recently. It's been uh, my responsibility while at Booker Raton for a couple of weeks to give five messages on these 17 verses that we have read together this evening. Now, you'll be thankful you're not going to hear them all. Um, it's going to be an overview uh, of the first half of this chapter, which I thought uh, it might be in the Lord's mind to share with you. The study of the epistle to the Romans is of great importance for believers uh, because in it we are shown, if you like, the message of the gospel and it describes how that a righteous God who had said that he could by no means justify the wicked in the book of Exodus he said that, he said he can't do it, he can't justify the wicked. The book of Romans explains how a righteous God can declare a guilty sinner guiltless and still remain righteous. 
And so it is all summed up in that little verse from Habakkuk, which was at the very end of our reading, the just shall live by faith. And so it is that the epistle to the Romans is well worth study by everybody. In fact, Tyndale, many, many years ago, in the introduction to his commentary on the Romans, he wrote this. Now, forgive the old English, but this is what he said. He said, I think it is meet that every Christian not only knows it, that is, knows Romans, by heart, but also exercises himself therein evermore continually. No man can read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it becomes, and the more it is searched, even more precious things are found in it. So the great treasure of spiritual things lie hid therein. Wherefore, let every man, without exception, exercise himself therein diligently, and read it night and day continually, until he be fully acquainted therewith. And I think that's a marvelous statement in connection with Romans. I wouldn't um, uh, say that by any means I am fully acquainted therewith, and I'm sure you wouldn't either. But to be just even a little bit acquainted with what Romans is about would be a real spiritual blessing to you all here this evening. It's interesting that the, um, in this opening chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul is explaining a number of things because um, strange things happened in Rome. And I'll just give you, as I say, an overview of it. And you, if you're interested, you can study it a bit more yourself. Of course, the letter is written by Paul. It's uh, not the first letter that he wrote, but it is, in, in our Bibles, the first epistle. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the history of the time the Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth. And you've also got then Acts, which is again further history of the preaching of the message. And then Romans, standing right at the head of all the epistles, of Paul's own 13 epistles and of the other epistles as well, demonstrating to us, again, its importance to us. As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned... Um, he was a man of letters. He was really an academic. But in practical life, he wasn't solely an academic. He was also a man of action. He was a man of letters and yet at the same time a man of action. He studied the book and yet he took the message himself to very dangerous places indeed. So he wrote this letter around about A.D. 58 and of the letters that he wrote, of the 13 that we have that he wrote, there are three of them, if you like, um, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans, that might be called his capital letters, the big letters, the doctrinal letters, the letters that are really teaching us of the things of God. And, of course, the epistle to the Romans is one of them. Now, he wanted to visit Rome. Why did he write this letter? Um, well, he had never been to Rome. And that's a bit strange too. And others might criticize that because Paul was almost the self-styled apostle to the Gentiles. Now, the head office, if you like, of the Gentiles was in Rome. It was the Roman Empire. Uh, the Caesar was there. Uh, it was academically powerful. It was militarily powerful. It was politically powerful. Rome was the seat of power. 
and yet there were some who might say, well, that's a strange state of affairs. How come that here in Rome, in the very heart of things, the very heart of the Roman Empire, how is it that the apostle to the Gentiles has never showed up here? And I think there are indications in the letter, and even in this first section that we have read, that there were some who might take the view that that seemed a very strange state of affairs. So certainly the assembly or the church in Rome had not been founded by the Apostle Paul. It had not been founded by Peter either, contrary to what some churches might still teach today, because as far as we know, he certainly wasn't there. And again, it was not founded by any other apostle either. So how did it get started? Well, there are a couple, two or three possibilities. One is that um, the message of the gospel might have been taken there by Priscilla and Aquila. On the other hand, it might have been taken there. You remember on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that there were a whole number of people from different nations listening to Peter preaching. And uh, there's that little phrase in there, that there were also present visitors from Rome. And uh, it may be that those visitors from Rome, hearing Peter preaching, were amongst the thousands that were saved and baptized, and they took the message of the gospel back to Rome when they went home again after their trip. Or, thirdly, and uh, an idea which I think may be the best of the lot, is that the Roman Empire, of course, placed its armies in different parts around the, of the world within the Roman Empire. And those Roman armies, they were led by centurions. And a centurion, a leader of 100 men, he would have been in a particular location for maybe two, three, four, even five years after which he went back home to Rome. Now, in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, there are centurions, many of them, who are impacted by the gospel. Just one or two examples. For example, there's the centurion, the centurion who met Jesus, whose servant was sick, do you remember, and the Lord healed him. There was the centurion that stood at the foot of the cross. Now, he saw a few things, and he concluded that this was a righteous man, the Son of God. There was the centurion, if you like, that... Um, rescued Paul when he was about to be scourged one time because he said to his superiors be careful what you do he said this man's a Roman there were two centurions that escorted uh, Paul if you like from um, Jerusalem to Caesarea there was, a, there was a, a centurion who even accompanied Paul on the ship and so, and so there were many centurions actually seven of them who came into contact with the gospel either through the person of Christ or through the Apostle Paul. And it might be when they went back home after their tour abroad that they took the message of the gospel. So how many believers were there in Rome? Well, we don't know. But it's interesting that many of the Apostles' um, letters start off with, for example, to the church at Corinth or to the church at Philippi or to the saints at Colossae but this starts off in a rather strange way, or even starts one to the churches of Galatia. But this starts off differently. It says, to all that be at Rome, down in verse number 7, to all that be in Rome. So what's he saying? 
Well, there are two reasons why he would say to all that be in Rome. One was that the churches in Rome consisted of Jews and Gentiles. And as a result of that, there were some tensions between them. Sometimes Jews were expelled from Rome, and when they came back, they found that the Gentiles were now in the ascendancy. And that would cause tension. So Paul says, look, I'm writing to all that be in Rome. But if you want to know how many churches there were in the city of Rome, I wonder if anybody knows how many there were. Would you like to say how many there were? Well, there were five. And you will find that in chapter 16. You will find that in chapter 16, Paul speaks to companies gathered together in different homes. And I believe that those were the five churches in Rome. And one of the reasons why he refers to them as all that be in Rome. Furthermore, when you come down here, he's saying, first of all, that he wants to come to Rome. He said he has tried on a number of occasions to do so, but it hadn't worked out. Well, why not? One of the reasons it hadn't worked out was that while it was Paul's will to come to Rome, it was not God's will, at least not yet. And it's a very important thing for we as Christians to be able to see that There are certain things that we want to do. And because we want to do it, we assume that it might be God's will as well. Well, it might be. But it might not be God's will at at this time. And Paul didn't go to Rome until he was sure that it was not only his will, but it was God's will. And, uh, of course, he eventually arrived there in a very strange fashion as a prisoner and um, God eventually took him to Rome so just because you and I will something we want to do it doesn't mean to say we should do it it might not be God's will for us at any time at all or it might mean that we don't do it yet because it's not yet God's time for us to do it important that we might be able to try to uh, differentiate between these things But one of the first things he does as he writes to them here now in Rome is that he wants to tell them quickly that the gospel that he has been preaching around the um, countries surrounding the Aegean Sea for over 10 years, that the gospel that he's preaching is the same gospel that they heard in Jerusalem or other places and that they preached in Rome too. And Paul had a big ambition. He'd done the same thing for 10 years preaching around the Aegean Sea countries And now he sees he has a bigger vision. He not only wants to go to Rome, but he wants to go to Spain. And I think he saw in Rome a good launching pad for a visit to Spain. Now he got to Rome, whether he ever got to Spain or not is a moot point, and uh, not for discussion here this evening. But I want you to see that as he starts off this letter, look at verse 1 now, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, who often starts, he often starts his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle, wanting you to know right away that he is a man in authority, sent by God with a message to which you had better listen up to if you don't mind. Uh, but not here. Why not? Because of the tension in Rome. Who is he? Why is he coming now? What's he trying to do? We've got on well, well enough without him. I went to a conference once, once, um, I don't know, 20 years ago in the 
valleys of South Wales, coal mining valleys as they were then. It was the 50th anniversary conference of this little meeting, and I'd never been there before. And the man who introduced me, uh, there were two speakers, when he introduced me, he said, we're very pleased to have Roy Hill with us. He said he's never been here before, and we've got on 50 years quite well without him, but now, now he's here, so we'll have to listen to him. So it wasn't quite like that, but Paul had to be careful, you see. He had to tread carefully, and as he does, and many signs of that here in this opening chapter, but he says, start off by saying, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I think that's a lovely way. He's recognizing that they're not 100% behind him in Rome, really. Although he had many friends there. He prayed in chapter 16 for 26 people by name that were in the Rome assemblies. And yet there were others there, as I say, who would just like to keep him at a distance. So he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. But he also then adds, and an apostle and my focus I am separated unto the gospel of God he said this is my calling interesting he was called to this in three ways number one before he was born number two at his conversion number three a little bit later called by God called by the Lord called by the Holy Spirit he was absolutely confident that he was called to preach the message of the gospel. And so, in a similar way, are you and me. But just quickly look at one or two things about the gospel. Verse number two, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here are three big things to remember about the gospel. Number one, the gospel is not a new message. It had been prophesied by Old Testament prophets. To such an extent, that some folks have even called the prophecy of Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah. Because Isaiah and the Psalms and others are absolutely replete with the message of the gospel. So it was prophesied. Now that gives us encouragement too, doesn't it? At least it should. The gospel is not just something that God dreamt up out of the blue when things went wrong. It had been prophesied from the very beginning that Messiah would come that he would die, that he would be crucified, that he would rise again, and the Gentiles would be invited into the fold. And so the gospel was prophesied. We thank God for that. But sometimes Old Testament prophecies didn't come true. When they were made by men who were not men of God, they didn't come true. So if there's a prophecy, it might not come true. But here's an even bigger deal. Look at what it says in verse 2, right at the beginning which God had promised. Now you see, prophecies might not come true sometimes, but God's promises always come true. And here is a real solid foundation, prophesied by prophets and promised by God. And the third big thing about the message of the gospel is in verse 3, that it concerns his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel message. He must be given the highest place in the preaching of the message. Indications that he is the son of God as well as the son of man. And so any message that does not exalt the person of Christ is not going to result in real spiritual blessing. So three things concerning the gospel. It was prophesied. It was promised. And personally, it's about the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He then tells us 
a number of things about the Son of God that I just want, well, I'm sharing all this with you quickly, but a number of things about the Lord Jesus. Look at verse number three. It says, concerning his Son. Now, that little phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord, is better lifted out of where it is in that verse and placed at the very end of the verse because you will see the build-up to it. Let me show you this. It's concerning his Son, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, that's the first thing the gospel uh, about the Son in the gospel, that the Son of God became a human being made of the seed of David, God with us, Emmanuel, if you like. That is a very basic point of the gospel. He was made of the seed of David. You see, if he had not been of the seed of David, he could never sit on David's throne in the millennial reign. And so it is that he had to be of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then, of course, not only was he of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he was, verse 4, declared, announced to be the Son of God with power, or better, the Son of God in power, meaning this, according to the Spirit of holiness, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ made of the seed of David, that's his humanity, but declared to be the Son of God in power, that's his deity. And these two things go hand in hand. Now, sometimes it's um, difficult to separate these two things, his deity and his humanity. Paul said in another place, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in flesh. But there's a way of illustrating, you see, sometimes people say, when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the boat, when he was asleep in the boat, that's his humanity. And when he stood up and said, peace be still, that was his deity. Well, I don't entirely agree with that. Because you know that in the New Testament, the clothes that people wore, garments, if you like, always spoke about character. Now, do you remember when the Lord Jesus was crucified? He had a garment, which we are told was of one piece, woven from the top throughout. A normal Jewish man would have, his coat would have been in two halves, a top and a bottom stitched in the middle. A seam. Well, what's it said about the Lord's coat? It was woven from the top throughout without seam. And I would say, suggest to you that the character of the Lord was like that too. You cannot say when he did that, that was his humanity. And when he did that, that was his deity. Because you can't pick it apart, you say. You can't pick it apart. Woven from the top throughout. Deity in humanity. God with us. Emmanuel. And that's the part and parcel of the message of the gospel. But declared to be the son of God in power. By the spirit of holiness. Now look at the last phrase of verse number three. By the resurrection from the dead. Now that would indicate. Or seem to indicate that when he rose from the dead he was declaring that he was the son of God in power well he was but that's not the only thing a better way to read that verse is according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection 
of the dead. Because you'll remember when he was here on earth, he raised the little girl, the little maid, age 12. That declared his deity. He raised the widow of Nain's son. That declared his deity. He raised Lazarus. That declared his deity. He raised himself. That declared his deity. And one of these days, our friends who have died already, and if we die before the Lord comes, he's going to raise us too. You see, the big characteristic about Jesus Christ is that he raises the dead. That's the emphasis here. Not just his own resurrection, which is included, but that he raised dead ones. That's what he does. <laughs> just when you're preaching sometimes silly things come into your mind but you know but if you ask the Lord what he, when he was here what he did for a living he raised the dead that's what he did for a living and um, so it is that uh, this is the big thing you see the, gospel, the Christ Jesus that's presented in the gospel is human and God at the same time and now today as we preach the gospel there's a man in the glory. There's a man in heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he is characterized by this, that he has power to raise the dead. And of course he does it every day. He does it every day. Paul writing in another place says, And you being dead in trespasses and sins. The people that are dead in sins... Jesus Christ saves them and raises them from that kind of deadness that has affected their life because of sin. And one day come, soon come soon, soon coming, he's going to raise all believers who have died from the dead and take them home to glory. Verse number five, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. We, the use of the word we, I expect you've heard of the phrase, the royal we. Um, it's um, uh, something we say back at home rather jokingly that the, um, the queen, if she's speaking, she would never say I. She always says we. And uh, there's a, uh, well, it's a joke that's told, but it's uh, it actually happened. I heard it uh, happening live in television. You remember Mrs. Margaret Thatcher, a great prime minister that we had at one time. When she became a grandmother for the first time, she stood in the steps of number 10 Downing Street and she made this announcement. She said, we are a grandmother. Well, I'm sure that was a slip of the tongue, but we are a grandmother kind of stuck with her, you see. And uh, it was the royal we. We are a grandmother. And here, the verse that we are reading is by whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, let me tell you, the believers in Rome had received grace but they had not received apostleship. They weren't apostles. So it can't mean that by whom we have received grace and apostleship. Either it's the royal we, and I think it is with Paul saying this, I have received as a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I have received as a gift the gift of apostleship, the grace of apostleship. And therefore, I'm coming to you as an apostle, but nevertheless, I'm very conscious that this was given to me as a gift. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. So there are some things here that the message of the gospel does. For example, one of the reasons for preaching the gospel is for the obedience of faith. This is verse number five. We're in now the middle of it. 
obedience to the faith. When the gospel is preached, the preacher is seeking obedience from the hearers. And what is the obedience? The obedience of faith. Furthermore, you have the um, scope of the gospel. And what's that? Among all nations. And then you have the motive of the gospel for his name's sake. So you see, here are three more things about the gospel. And the threefold cord is not quickly broken. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. I've received the gift of apostleship, he says. What do I do with it? When I preach, I ask for obedience to the message. I do it among all nations. And I do it for the glory of God. And that those things should encourage us and be our motivation as well. Then he says to them, verse 7, To all that be in Rome. Well, that's nice. We've already described that. Beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, for God is my witness. Now, up until now, he's been talking about preaching. Now he's going to talk about praying. Now, if they wanted to find out about his preaching, they knew well that many, many thousands of people had been converted under Paul's preaching. They knew that many, many churches and assemblies had been established and built up under his gospel preaching and his ministry. They knew these things. It was obvious. You could see it. You could go there and discover it for yourself. Go to Philippi and you find a big church there. Go to Colossae, you find the same. Go to Thessalonica, you find the same. But now he's going to talk about praying. And what's he say? Well, he said, first, I thank my God for you all that through Jesus Christ that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He said, now, I'm delighted that wherever I go, people tell me about the churches in Rome. They tell me about your faith. And it's a wonderful thing to think that there in the very heart of the Roman Empire, there were four or five churches you see, remember one church in the book of the Revelation when the Lord Jesus Christ wrote to them, he said, I know where you, where you live, he said. You live really where Satan's seat is. I know that. So if there was a church, if you like, where Satan's seat was, there were also these churches in Rome who were there at the very heart and core of the Roman Empire. And there was little or nothing that the Caesar could do about it, although they did try from time to time. But now he said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Now this is the phrase, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. In other words, he says, I've never been to Rome. I don't know all of you. I know 26 of you. Um, I would love to come to Rome, but I want you to know that I'm praying for you all the time. Well, now, you know, some of the cynics at Rome might say, well, <laughs> but who's to say? I mean, if I come here to you and tell you I'm a preacher, you can listen to me and make your own judgment about that, rightly or wrongly. But if I come here and say to you, look, I've been praying for this assembly for years, you would say, How? you don't know, do you? I might be right. I might be wrong. But what does Paul say? So the witness to preaching 
is the people who hear the gospel and believe it. The witness to praying is, he said, God is my witness. It's only God knows about your prayer life and mine. And here Paul was able to say, For God is my witness, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Lovely that, isn't it? Paul prayed a lot. He prayed for the churches. He prayed for people that he knew. He prayed for people that he didn't know. So how do you do all these things? Sometimes when a missionary comes to give a report, he might say, now look, I'm going to give you this information so that you might pray more intelligently. Now I have difficulty understanding what an intelligent prayer is. I don't know. But um, you see, what Paul did, and this is a lovely thing, he said, making mention of you in my prayers. So, if you wanted to pray for me, you might say, well, I don't know anything about you. Well, it doesn't matter. You know my name. And when you pray, just mention Roy Hill. That's enough. Heaven knows all about me and my circumstances, my problems, my family, my ministry, and everything else. You just say Roy Hill, and that's um, enough. That's what Paul was doing here, making mention of you always in my prayers. Making requests, he said, if by any means I might have a prosperous journey, by the will of God to come to you and so he wanted to come for the reasons we've already discussed now look at verse number um, 11 just an interesting little thing here for he takes a step backward he says for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established now what that means is I want to come to you And if I do come to you, I want to be a blessing to you. I remember some of the cynics at Rome. I say, well, we've had plenty of blessing without you for, uh, in his case, maybe 20 years. I don't know. Um, You know, but look how he corrects it almost immediately. Look at that. Look at verse 10 again. Sorry, verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be blessed verse 12 that is that I might be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me a number of lessons you can learn from that number one it's almost as if he's qualifying he's saying first of all I'm going to come and see you and if and when I do come I'll be a blessing to you and then he says that is (laughs) hang on let me explain that is that I might be comforted by you. Now, maybe, for example, when you came along to this meeting tonight, you thought, well, I'll go along to the meeting tonight and I might receive a blessing. Well, I hope you do. When I come along to the meeting tonight, I say to myself, well, I hope I might receive a blessing. And I hope I do. How can I bless you? By sharing with you the Holy Scriptures. But you're all here sitting listening. Since I started, you haven't said anything. So how can you be a blessing to me? You can be a blessing and encouragement to me, number one, and any other preacher, number one, by being here. That's an encouragement. Number two, by listening attentively and not falling asleep half or quarter way through. (laughs) That's an encouragement too. You can be a blessing to me that if you were blessed in the ministry, just mentioning it to me or to somebody else afterwards, that can be a blessing to me too. So 
the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel is a two-way thing. That is, says Paul, that I may be comforted and encouraged together with you in the mutual faith, both of you and me. Verse 13, he says, I would not have you ignorant. Interesting that that phrase, Paul uses it seven times in the New Testament, I would not have you ignorant. Again, he spoke earlier of the Holy Scriptures, and in Romans, the Scriptures are mentioned seven times, and and many, many other things like this that you can read and enjoy. But I just want to come to the end because our time is almost up. Not that... Now, now I would not have you ignorant, verse 13, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was let or was hindered hitherto. Paul wanted to do it. It wasn't yet God's time. That I might have some fruit among you even. And look at that little phrase at the end of verse 13, as among other Gentiles, which supports what I said earlier, that the church in Rome or the churches in Rome were now mainly Gentile, as among other Gentiles. He said, I'm a debtor. You know these three lovely phrases. Verse 14, I am a debtor. Number 2, verse 15, I am ready. And number 6, verse 16, I am not ashamed. Now these are all concerning the gospel. Here was Paul's attitude to the gospel. Number 1, he said, I want to come and preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. So, why did he want to preach the gospel to them, to those that were at Rome? Because they were already saved, weren't they? <laughs> they were in assembly fellowship, they were baptized, they were saved, they were believers. They knew the gospel. He said, I want to come and preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Well, it might mean one of two things. Number one, there is no reason whatever why Christians should not have the gospel preached to them. You say, but we know what? Well, you think you know what? But by the time you get through Romans and study the whole thing, then you'll discover more and more about the gospel. Sometimes back at home, when this, where assemblies are quite small these days, a preacher might show up and they have a look around the maybe 20 folk that are there and they know they're all believers in assembly fellowship and he says well I'm not going to preach the gospel to you I'm going to um, uh, minister the word now he was asked to preach the gospel right believers need to have the gospel preached to them again and again and again because it will establish them and build them up in faith like nothing else can do now says Paul I want to preach the gospel because I am a debtor I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to the cultured and the uncultured, to the educated and the uneducated. I am a debtor. Now, a debtor is somebody who owes something. And if it had been announced here in uh, Pembroke Pines that Roy Hill was coming along tonight to clear his debts, right? Um, (laughs) The place might have been packed with the hopefuls. Um, But I have a debt, and so have you that you owe the message of the gospel to your family to your friends to your neighbours and to the people in the locality you owe them a debt now most of us try to avoid debt or if we have debt to pay it off as soon as we can 
Uh, you wouldn't really like to show up in heaven, would you, with half of your debts not paid? I mean, your debts about preaching the gospel, people that you didn't tell, people that you didn't share with. Paul says, I'm conscious that I am a debtor. Number two, he says, I am ready. As much as in me is, he said, I am ready. Um, as much as in me is means to the best of my ability health permitting and all the rest of it he says I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also so conscious that he owed the people something he made himself ready he was prepared to preach the gospel and you and I shall go about our daily business ready prepared so that perhaps in the morning before we go out we might just ask the Lord if he would be so kind as to lead us to somebody who's already expecting who, to whom he's already speaking and that he would prepare my heart so that when the opportunity comes up I'm ready, I'm ready you know it's, it's interesting sometimes you know we set out to seek the lost which is a good thing but it's always better than if we go seeking, if the Lord brings someone to us. It's strange that, you know. And he can do it. And he does do it. And it's much easier speaking to someone to whom the Lord is already speaking than it is starting a new thing altogether. We need to be always ready. Always ready. Uh, two years ago I was in California and... Um, it was the last day of my meetings there and I took myself out to a Starbucks or something for a coffee and I sat in the sunshine and, uh, in the month of May and uh, finished what I was eating and I'd noticed at a table it was the next table to me but it was as far away as halfway down these rows here and there was a man and a woman and their daughter well I assumed it was their daughter sitting there you see when I got up to leave, go to my car this lady got up and intercepted me before I got to the car she came down another way she said, excuse me speaking to you. She says, do you live here? I said, no, I live in England and I'm going home tomorrow. But why do you ask? Oh, she said, well, she said, it's my father. She said, he's not very well. I think he's about your age, she said. And uh, I was wondering if you would go and visit him because he's lonely and he, I'm worried about him and he needs help, you say. So she picked entirely the wrong person, didn't she? So I said, look, I tell you what, I'll not be here. Where do you actually live? And she said, Palo Alto. I said, well, I know somebody from the church I'm at that lives in Palo Alto. You give me, um, I'll give you his phone number and you can phone him and he'll fix to go and see your father. Okay, she said, that's great. Thank you very much. Sorry to have troubled you. Off she went. I thought then thereafter. Now, I really messed up there because... I gave her his phone number. I didn't ask her for her details. So that's a contact lost. So I went downtown in Claremont in California and uh, it was a holiday and all the shops were shut and, uh, uh, except I knew there was a bookshop downtown, a second-hand bookshop and I thought, well, I'll go and see if that's open and have a little browse around. I walked down and it was open and I walked in and sat behind the desk was the woman's daughter. Right? 
Now, would you say the Lord was working something here? It was the woman's daughter. And I said to her, I said, I've seen you earlier. She said, you have. She said, I'm so ashamed of my mother, she said. She said, she never really acts like that at all, but I'm so, I can't believe why she did it, she said. I do apologize. I said, don't apologize. Just give me her email address, which she did. And contact was set up between the assembly and the woman. And who knows what that is going to lead to in due course. But we've got to be ready, not just to preach, but ready to be alert, to take details, to establish contacts, etc. And then finally, and we're through, for he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God under salvation. Now, interestingly, the word Rome means power. <laughs> Lovely way to put that, isn't it? In, in the epistle to the believers at Rome, the gospel, you might have thought the Caesar was the power. I mean, he's all powerful. The gospel is the, par- the power of God under salvation to everyone that believeth. I am not ashamed of it. Uh, are you ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed of the gospel? You know, I think sometimes we are. I mean, it's a strange story, really, isn't it? That a baby was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago or more. And um, blow me, people say that, you know, he, was, he came from heaven. He, he wasn't born naturally. He came, well, he was born naturally, but conceived, um, if you like, in a different way by the Holy Spirit. And so we expect people to believe that. And then we expect them not only to believe that he was from heaven and the Son of God, but that we expect them to believe that when he died on the cross, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, that's a big ask, that is, really. People living today have never met anybody that's been raised again. So why should they believe this? And again, we say, we believe he's coming back again. Well, they've never known anybody coming back again at all. Nobody coming. I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? And sometimes you might feel a little bit ashamed about the message. But here Paul is saying, he's not really saying, I am not ashamed. What he's saying is this, I'm proud of the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. The Bible does things like that. Remember, Abraham had great faith. In the Old Testament it says, and Abraham not being weak in faith. You see, it goes to the other extreme just to emphasize the positive, it goes to the negative. Here he says, I am not ashamed. What he means is, I am proud of the gospel. Now, if you've got a new car, I'm sure you're proud of it. You've got a new baby, I'm sure you're proud of it. But in the same way, as the gospel's concerned, I am proud of the gospel is what we should say. So, time's gone. I'm sorry for drifting over time a little bit, but I hope that this little overview might encourage you to go back to read the epistle to the Romans. It is dynamite. It is foundational. It will cause you to be stronger in your faith than what you are today. And every time I read it and preach it, it makes me feel the strength that it's in the letter. May God bless his word. Shall we pray? Our Father, we come to thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for the opportunity of sharing with thy saints here in this place. We do pray that it might be to the end that we shall both be comforted in the Holy Scriptures. 
Our Father, we thank thee for the Apostle Paul, this tremendous man, this one, our Father, who took the gospel so far and so saw so many converted and so many assemblies established. We pray for thy full-time servants today, serving thee abroad and indeed at home, and ask, Lord, that thou wouldst encourage them in the self-same ways. So we commit and commend ourselves now into thy hands and ask thee to separate us with thy blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.